Why don't we have a word of prayer and we'll begin. Heavenly Father, thank you for this evening and the time we have together to look into the Word of God again. Thank you for watching over us, for supplying all of our needs, for your mercy every day in our lives. Help us, Father, to be thankful and to appreciate all that you've done for us. Give us an understanding of your word and a greater desire to be obedient to that word. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So we're looking at Acts chapter 21 this evening. Acts chapter 21. We've been talking about Paul's third missionary journey, and we've been looking at the end of that missionary journey. Remember, Paul is in Corinth, and there in Corinth, he writes the book of Romans, and he planned, you remember, to go sail right back to to uh, Caesarea, sail back to Israel, but there was a plot to kill him, so he goes back through Macedonia again, you remember, he uh, sails then from Philippi over to Troas, he goes from Troas to Miletus. Remember, Paul walks from Troas to Asos here. And then he picks up the ship that the, his friends are on. This is a ship that stops at these various ports like Mytilene, Chios, Samos, then Miletus. And the text tells us he deliberately decided to sail past Ephesus because... Ephesus was a big church. He knew a lot of people there, and he didn't want to go there. <laughs> you just can't go and spend, you know, a couple hours. We'd have to spend a couple of several days, you know. So he sailed past, and then he calls for the elders of the church at Ephesus to come in Acts chapter 20, verses 17 through 38. That was the last thing we looked at when he calls for the elders to come to Miletus. Now we're looking at uh, on to Jerusalem here, still under the close of this third missionary journey, Acts chapter 21, verses 1 through 16. It says, After we had torn ourselves away from them, that is the Ephesian elders who were meeting with Paul at Miletus, we put out to sea and sailed straight to Kaz. So here they're sailing steel along this merchant vessel. And then uh, we went to Rhodes and from there to Patera. So they're still stopping here and they come to Patera. We found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, went on board and set sail. So at Patera they found a larger vessel a merchant vessel that's going non-stop to Tyre. That's about 400 miles, which took generally around five days. Here's that Patera Harbor. You say, where's the harbor at? Well, all these harbors have silted up over the years, you know. In 2,000 years, <laughs> these rivers bring silt down. They bring sand. They bring debris down. And that's why, you know, in modern harbors, uh, I used to live in Virginia, and I lived right on the coast, uh, the James River, we had we had uh, Hampton Roads, all kinds of shipbuilding. They had to dredge that stuff. You know, you have to dredge to keep the, these places from silting up. And so these things have all silted up here now. Um, so they find a ship sailing over 
to Phoenicia. So three, after sighting Cyprus and passing to the south of it, we sailed on to Syria. We landed at Tyre where our ship was to unload its cargo. So here they are sailing to Tyre in verse 3. Um, we uh, sought out the disciples there and stayed with them seven days. Through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. Now, as I say here, some have understood this as a prohibition, that is a prohibition from God, and Paul is out of the will of God. They understand 1921 and 2022 as referring to Paul's spirit. I mentioned Warren Wiersbe here. So remember, we talked about this all the way back in 1921, where it says, after all this had happened, this is when Paul is at Ephesus, Paul decided to go to Jerusalem, <clears throat> passing through Macedonia and Achaia. After this, he said, uh, I must visit Rome also. Uh, Paul decided. Now, the question is, remember we talked about there, it says Paul in the spirit. Is that the human spirit or is that the Holy Spirit? And uh, the NIV takes it here as the human spirit. And, of course, Wearies would say, yeah, that's the human spirit, and that's where Paul went wrong right there. Paul decided in his human spirit. He got off track right there. And then in 2022, remember it says, and now compelled by the spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem. This is when he's speaking to the Ephesian elders. Now, the NIV translates that Holy Spirit. I think both of these are Holy Spirit, actually. But Wearsby would say, no, now compelled by my human spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem. So Wearsby says, you know, Paul is out of the will of God here. And the proof that he's out of the will of God is he gets arrested in Jerusalem and all that kind of stuff, so he's clearly out of the will of God. Um, and so it's taken here, he takes this prohibition here uh, as a prohibition from God through the Spirit through the Holy Spirit. They urge Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. I say here, however, it is most likely, and, I, and most people take the position I'm saying, not that it's right, but most people believe it's most likely that the disciples at Tyre received the same kind of revelation as in verses 10 and 11. See, later in chapter 21 in verse 10, when Paul gets down to Caesarea, let's just jump ahead for a moment. After we had been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And we saw him earlier in Acts chapter 11 predicting a famine. Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it. And he said, the Holy Spirit says in this way, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of the belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. <coughs> So I'm saying here, it's most likely that the disciples received the kind, same kind of revelation as verse 10, and therefore actually was only a warning to Paul of what awaited him, but was interpreted by them as a prohibition. It just seems, I know Paul is not, uh, Paul is not uh, infallible. You know, he's, Paul could sin. <laughs> but it seems unlikely from what we've seen of Paul 
that he would just go this far against God's will here. He would just say, I don't care what God says. I'm going to Jerusalem. You know, that, that seems a little far-fetched to believe, I think. So I think most likely is the Holy Spirit is just warning Paul. This is what's going to happen to you. When you go to Jerusalem, you're going to be bound. And Paul will say there, okay, I got you, but I don't, I'm willing to give my life here to carry out my mission and so forth. So I'm taking verse 4 here as not a prohibition from God, but simply a warning through the Spirit. And, and there's, they, they, they understand that Paul is going to be arrested, and they say, Paul, don't go. Right? I mean, you know, it's, if we know of impending danger, we would normally tell people, don't do that. It's dangerous. And so that's their advice, I think, based upon what they understand is going to happen to him, which is true, that he's going to be arrested there probably, as we see down in verse 10, be bound and so forth. So uh, when it was time to leave, verse 5, we left, continued on our way. All of them, including wives and children, accompanied us out of the city. And there on the bench, we knelt to pray. After saying goodbye to each other, we went on board the ship. They returned home. We continued our voyage from Tyre and landed at Ptolemaeus. So they keep going down to Ptolemaeus. Um, uh, where we greeted the brothers and sisters and stayed with them a day. Leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea. So they come down to Caesarea. And stayed at the house of Philip, the evangelist. Now, we last saw him, remember, back in the earlier chapters of Acts. And it says he was taken away by the Spirit to Caesarea. Well, now he's here. we see him here in Caesarea. One of the seven, he had four married daughters who prophesied. Last mentioned in Acts 8. That's about 20 years earlier. Uh, as I say, daughters who prophesied. Uh, women could prophesy. Uh, how is that possible? I say women could not be pastors, elders, or overseer. Paul says he forbids a woman to teach or have authority over a man. So he wouldn't allow a woman to be a pastor or an elder in that sense. But this prophetic gift was a gift where God comes upon a person and they, and they speak whatever God gives them. They are not uh, interpreting the word. They are not, in a sense, really teaching. They're just projecting and saying what God gives them to say. So, as we see in 1 Corinthians eleven five, Paul mentions about prophesying. And also here, I think, that's what's going on. This was the gift of prophecy. And they prophesy here. Uh, they could prophesy. Well, verse 10 we read already. This is Agabus, the prophet of 1128. And uh, I guess we've got some pictures here. Caesarea, we've looked at Caesarea before. <laughs> this is where Paul would have landed, right here at this harbor right here. You can see the remains of it. Most of it is underground. You would come in right through here, actually, we understand. They've been doing some excavations here uh, of Caesarea. Here is a palace. We'll come back and look at this a little later because Paul will eventually be taken prisoner in Jerusalem and brought back to Caesarea and made a prisoner in this palace here of Caesar's palace. So uh, the, the capital 
of Roman Judea was Caesarea. Uh, the Jews considered Jerusalem the capital. You remember Jerusalem there. But the, the, the governor, his official residence was here in Caesarea, and this was his residence right here. So we get kind of a view here of what they did. <coughs> now, when I was there some years ago, they hadn't excavated where this stadium is right here, or a lot of this hadn't even been excavated. So a lot of this is new. The theater was all excavated, and some of this was, but not everything was. So, uh, verse uh, 10, we read this before, after we'd been there a number of days in Caesarea, Agabus comes, you know, he gives this demonstration of this prophecy, he binds his hands and feet and says that's what's going to happen to Paul. When they heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go to Jerusalem, verse 12. Then Paul answered, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of our Lord Jesus. When he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, the Lord's will be done. After this, we started on our way up to Jerusalem. So they leave Caesarea, you go up higher in geographical heights to go to Jerusalem. We went up to Jerusalem. Um, some of the disciples from Caesarea accompanied us and brought us to the home of Manson where we were to stay. He was a man from Cyprus and one of the early disciples. As I say here, he was a Hellenistic Jewish Christian. He was probably more willing to accept Paul and his Gentile companions than the more traditional Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. Is it getting warm in here? Is it okay? Is it okay? Okay, if it gets too warm, we can cut that down a little bit. All right, let's look at uh, various events and Paul's defenses at Jerusalem. We're in Jerusalem finally now. Acts chapter 21, verse 17 through verse 23, through chapter 23, 22, when Paul is taken to Caesarea as a prisoner. So we're looking at the events that happened in Jerusalem. So, uh, first of all, we see his arrival at Jerusalem, verses 17 through 26. Uh, it says, verse 18, The next day, Paul and all the rest of us, uh, verse 17, When we arrived at Jerusalem, when, when we arrived at Jerusalem, verse 17, the brothers and sisters received us warmly. 18, the next day, Paul and the rest of us went to see James, and all the elders were present. So uh, I say, with this, the verse, uh, the second we section comes to an end. Remember, these we sections are where Luke is with Paul. Uh, the we is dropped in 2119 through 2632, probably because Paul is the focus of the narrative and all the events happened only to him. In 2632, it picks up again because there's where Paul is shipped off to Rome and, and Luke is with him going to Rome. But right now, Luke is there with Paul, we assume, in Jerusalem. Paul's in prison for two years in Caesarea. Some people speculate a lot of things here. They say, this may be where Luke got a lot of information about his gospel possibly. Maybe he started writing his gospel or he had started writing his gospel from Paul. Some people suggest uh, 
He interviewed Mary. A lot of possibilities. We just don't know. But we should assume that he was in Palestine longer than just verses 17 and 18 might give us suspicions. We've looked at Jerusalem some a little bit in the past. I just want to acquaint you again with some of the places we'll be looking at here. This is kind of a map of Jerusalem in the first century A.D., though it's a little confusing here because this wall here, this third wall, this wall here, is after the time of Paul. In the time of Paul and Jesus, the wall of Jerusalem comes out here and comes around around here like this. This is a, a wall that's built after Paul's time. Here's that map, uh, that, that map, that, uh, that the model of Jerusalem. It's usually called the, the model of the Holy Land Hotel because there was a hotel in Jerusalem, the Holy Land Hotel, and the proprietor there had a model built many years ago. It's gotten moved to the Israeli Museum here. But a lot of people look at it because it helps us kind of get an idea of where things might be. So there's the wall. Here is the here is the wall that probably was true in Paul's day. And it came around here. This third wall was not true. This is probably Golgotha here. This is where Jesus was crucified. Outside the wall. It was outside the city. It was outside that wall at that time. Here's the Temple Mount. Here's the Temple. Here's the Fortress Antonia here. There is, uh, remember, the Wailing Wall or the Western Wall where uh, Jews come to pray. Um, this is the Feast of Tabernacles. I think we we looked at that uh, before. So here is uh, see you don't you don't see that third wall here. There's Golgotha. So here's how it looked like in the first century. Here's the here's the Temple Court of the Gentiles, Fortress Antonia. Here's how it went around. Here's Herod's Palace over here, uh, and this is where the uh, since there was no Herod there at this time, there was a Roman governor who was ruling. The Roman governor, though his residence was in Caesarea, when he came to Jerusalem, he would stay in this palace. So the same was true with Jesus. Remember, Jesus was taken back and forth between Herod and the Roman governor and so forth. Uh, so there's the Temple Mount, as you think about there's the Fortress Antonia that we'll talk about because we'll see that comes into, into prominence here. So that's just a sort of little diagram. You've got the Court of the Women here and then the, the Court of the Men here where men could go, women couldn't. The Holy Place and the Holiest of Holies here. Here's this balustrade or this little wall that goes around where no Gentile was allowed. This is the court of the Gentiles, but no Gentile could cross this. We'll talk about this because Paul is accused of bringing a Gentile across that balustrade, across that little fence there, across that wall. He's accused by Jews of doing that, as we'll see. And that's uh, well, that's the charge they bring against Paul. So there's the fortress Antonia. Here's the royal stoa royal portico. This is probably where the Sanhedrin was meeting. We're not exactly sure. 
at the time of Paul, if that's true or not, but most think that's true, eventually the Sanhedrin did meet there. So that's probably where Paul was taken, as we'll see later in Acts here when he's taken before the Sanhedrin. Here's that court of the Gentiles. Here is this balustrade that had a sign. No foreigners to enter within the balustrade and embankment around the sanctuary. Whoever is caught will have himself to blame for his death, which follows. So there is the court of the Gentiles, the fortress Antonia. And there's the fortress Antonia from the west. Here's the temple. You know, we've seen kind of, I think we've seen this before. So here's the gate into the court of the women. Here, this is the uh, court of the Gentiles here. You can see that balustrade there. It's kind of pointing that out where Gentiles aren't allowed to go. That gives you a kind of a picture of things. There's the royal stoa. All right. So um, we're looking at page 35 in our notes here. Verse 19, Paul greeted them. That is, the next day Paul and the rest of the, uh, us went up to see James and all the elders. Now this is James, the half-brother of Christ. Do you remember? He's sort of the leader of the church of Jerusalem, maybe the pastor of the church of Jerusalem. You've seen that. He was kind of kind of sort of heading up that Jerusalem council. He was the last one to speak, you know, at the end there in Acts chapter 15. Um, Paul greeted them and reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. When they heard this, they praised God. Then they said to Paul, You see, brothers, how many thousands of Jews have believed, and all of them are zealous for the law. They have been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs. What shall we do? Now, this creates a little bit of a tension for us. There's no question. They will certainly hear what you have done. So do what we tell you. Um, what is the relationship here between, you know, Paul and the law and Judaism and Jewish customs? Remember, we are in a transition period here uh, Paul was not teaching Jews to turn away from their Jewish customs not to circumcise their children he wasn't saying you couldn't have Jewish culture now what he did argue was you that you can't be you can't be saved by circumcision and keeping the law keeping the law won't save you it, it, it uh, circumcision won't save you so he was opposed to that especially because the Judaizers came and tried to impose that upon Gentiles who had no cultural relationship, you know, to, to Judaism at all. But he was not opposed to Jews continuing to live as Jews. Apparently, he himself dressed as a Jew. He didn't dress as a Roman. He was normally taken to be a Jew wherever he went. So they say, uh, what shall we do? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do what we tell you. There are four men with us who have made a vow. Um, well, as I say in verse 21, this was a lie. Paul never, when it says verse 21, uh, that you are teaching 
people to turn away from Moses, not to circumcise. I say that's a lie because never he never told Jews to apostatize in that sense. Uh, but he was mainly talking about Gentiles. And they say, what shall we do? And as I say here, the problem faced by Paul and the leaders of, at Jerusalem was a rising tide of Jewish nationalism. Jewish law and Jewish nationalism went hand in hand. Any attack on the law was an attack on the nation. The Jerusalem church had accepted the Gentile mission of Paul, but for Jewish Christians to be closely tied to the Gentiles put them in a difficult position. Jewish solidarity with the Gentile mission was becoming more difficult to affirm if the, if the Jerusalem church's relations with the nation were to be maintained and opportunities for an outreach to, to Israel kept open. So I guess there's some, it's a difficult position here. The, the Jewish church there in Jerusalem does not want to alienate the nation at this point. They're trying to evangelize the nation. It seems to be what's going on. And so they say, here we have these four men who have made a vow. Take these men, join in their purification rites, pay their expenses so they can have their head shaved. Then everyone will know that there is no truth in these reports about you, but you yourself are living in obedience to the law. As for the Gentile believers, we have written to them from our decision, uh, to them our decision that they abstain from the food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. The next day, Paul took them in and purified himself along with them, and then he went to the temple to give notice of the date when the days of purification would end and the offering would be made for each of them. So I suggest here the leaders of the Jerusalem church suggested something practical Paul might do in order to make it clear that the accusations of verse 21, that he was telling Jews to give up Judaism altogether, were not true. The four men in the church had made in the church had made a vow. The fact that this involves shaving their heads indicates this was a Nazarite vow, probably. It was proposed that Paul should show respect for the law by associating himself with these men, paying for their sacrifices. This was an accepted act of Jewish piety. Josephus, the Jewish historian who lived during the time of Paul, relates that Herod Agrippa I, remember Herod's grandson, Herod the Great's grandson, Herod Agrippa I, who was the person who was, uh, you know, smitten with worms in Acts chapter 12, remember that, Herod Agrippa, paid the expenses for many Nazarites. Coming from abroad, Paul would have had to regain ceremonial purity by a seven-day ritual purification before he could be present at the absolution ceremony of four Jewish Christians in the Jerusalem temple. This ritual included reporting to one of the priests and being sprinkled with water of atonement on the third and seventh days. What Paul did was to report to the priest at the start of his seven days of purification, inform him that he was providing the funds for the offering of the four impoverished men who had taken the Nazarite vow and returned to the temple at regular intervals during the week for the appropriate rites. Well, verse 27 when the seven days were nearingly over, some Jews from the province of Asia, that's like Ephesus, remember, saw Paul at the temple. They stirred up the whole crowd and seized him, shouting, Fellow Israelites, help us. This is the man who teaches everyone, everywhere against our people and our law and this place, the temple. And besides, he has brought Jews into the temple and defiled this holy place. 
And Luke adds, they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, in the city with Paul and assumed that Paul had brought him into the temple. So, we see Paul's arrest here in the temple. As I say here, the strategy to please the Jews didn't obviously work. The Jews from Asia who had come to Jerusalem for the Pentecost, remember Paul was coming back for the Feast of Pentecost, he'd been trying to get there, they instigated a riot under the pretense he brought Trophimus, the Gentile representative from Ephesus. He's mentioned back in Acts chapter 20, verse 4. Remember, Paul was bringing this offering back to Jerusalem, and he brought representatives from all these churches, Gentiles from these churches, to come with him back and carry this offering, supervise this offering, and so forth. And they say, he's brought this Trophimus beyond the barrier. Remember the barrier here, the balustrade here. They're claiming he's brought him beyond the barrier where Jews are only allowed to go. And this inscription in both Latin and Greek read, no foreigner is to enter within the palestrade and embankment around the sanctuary. Whoever is caught will have himself to blame for his death which follows. Now, from what we understand, the Romans seem to allow the Jews to execute any Gentile, even a Roman citizen, caught beyond the barrier. That's what I kind of understand. And that really is pretty amazing. If that's true, I've read this and it seems to be true because Roman, because remember, Jews didn't have the right of capital punishment. To execute Jesus, they had to go get the Roman governor's power. But supposedly, from what I've read and studied, that they would, they would allow this because they had to sign up here. No Gentile supposed to go in there and, you know, you could be executed breaking this. So we know this is not true. Paul was, Paul was trying to get along with the Jews. He would never take a Gentile across that barrier. How dumb could you be, you know, to do something like that? Um, and if, even if he had, even if Paul had taken Trophimus across there, Paul's not the guy to be put to death. It's Trophimus. <laughs> Paul could cross the barrier all he wants to. Trophimus is the guy who crossed the barrier. If he did, he's the one who'd be put to death, not Paul. This is simply an excuse for these Asian Jews to vent their anger against the Apostle Paul, isn't it? That's all that's really going on here. So uh, when they saw Paul at the temple, verse 27, when the seven days were nearly over and they saw Paul, they stirred up the whole crowd and seized him, seized Paul. Fellow Israelites, help us. This is the man who teaches everywhere and so forth. And he's brought this man Trophimus. Verse 30, this whole city was aroused and the people came running from all directions. Seizing Paul, they dragged him from the temple and immediately the gates were shut. While they were trying to kill him, the news reached the commander of the Roman troops that the whole city of Jerusalem was in an uproar. Now the commander here... Uh, this word commander, as I say here, is the word, Greek word for a leader of a thousand soldiers. This was what the Romans called a tribune, generally. Uh, so he was commander of the cohort stationed at the Fortress Antonio, consisting, we know later on, because it talks about who he sent to Caesarea, 760 infantry, 240 cavalry. According to Acts 23, 26, his name is Claudius Lysias. We actually know his name because he writes a letter 
the governor says, this is Claudius Lysias, the tribune. And so there's the fortress Antonia, and this is where, of course, uh, we're talking about. So they come down from the fortress. They come down here and come into the temple courts, and they're trying to figure out what is going on here. Um, These people are trying to kill Paul. Verse 32. He at once took some officers and soldiers, ran down to the crowd. When the rioters saw the commander and his soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Uh, As I say here, the plural is used here. The officers are the centurions. Centurions, you know, supposedly commanded a couple hundred. So there could be a force of 200. We don't know how many, but several several soldiers here, obviously. This is a major disturbance. You need a lot of troops to kind of quell this thing, apparently. And so they come down trying to figure out what's going on. Commander came up, verse 33, and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. When he asked who he was and what he had done, some of the crowd shouted one thing and some another. And since the commander could not get at the truth because of the uproar, he ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. When Paul reached the steps, the violence of the mob was so great he had to be carried by the soldiers. The crowd that followed him kept shouting, Get rid of him! Uh, so the commander here is in a tough position. I always feel sorry for this guy because he's trying to quell this violence down here in the temple and he sees this Jew being beat up down here and he doesn't know what's going on. Uh, he probably is not understanding their language. They're speaking Aramaic or Hebrew, as we'll see. They're not speaking, you know, they're probably not speaking Greek there in Jerusalem. Uh, so they're speaking Aramaic or Hebrew and he doesn't know what's going on. Uh, He figures this guy's a criminal. But when he asked the mob what the crime is, what is the crime? What has this guy done? He must be a criminal because you're trying to kill him. Well, one party says something, another party says something else. So therefore, he says, let's take him up to the fortress, to the barracks, and we can extract a confession. And that's exactly what they do, you know. They extract a confession. It's not, you know, they don't get you up there and say... Now, would you like a lawyer? You know, would you would you like some? <laughs> we're going to get you up there and beat you. It's the rack or waterboarding. What's that? It's the rack or waterboarding. That's right. It's waterboarding, my friend. It's a lot worse than waterboarding, I'll tell you. <laughs> and so they say, take him. You know, so they, so the soldiers have to carry him up there. That you know, to get him up the steps here. Now, this photo here, nobody really knows exactly what this was like. So these are all, you can see they've got sort of some steps going down there. Some people depict this with steps on the outside coming up. You know, you'll see different renditions of how there were apparently some steps, but nobody knows exactly how the steps work. They're they're showing some sort of inside steps here and so forth. But it sounds like from this they're more outside because they're they're going up. Paul goes up the steps and he stops and he addresses the crowd. So I don't think this model is probably correct here most of them think it's correct at this particular point. So, uh, verse uh, 37, we see Paul's defense before the people, 2137 through 2222. Uh, at this point, uh, as the soldiers were about to take Paul in the barracks, he asked the commander, 
He said, may I say something to you? Do you speak Greek, he replied? Verse 38. Commander's asking Paul, do you speak Greek? Aren't you the Egyptian who started a revolt and led 4,000 terrorists out into the wilderness some time ago? Um, so here's the commander who's surprised that Paul, this local Jewish troublemaker, is speaking Greek. He's surprised at his fluent Greek. So he asked him, aren't you maybe the, the Egyptian who started a revolt? Maybe you're not the local, maybe you're not some local guy. Maybe you're this well-known Egyptian, as I mentioned here. The Greek text indicates the commander's question was an inference based upon Paul's Greek-speaking ability. So first he thinks he's just a local problem. And then when he hears he's speaking Greek, he thinks, uh-oh, we've got something bigger going on here. Since Paul spoke Greek, the commander thought he might have been an Egyptian Jew who led a revolt to take over the city about three years earlier in A.D. 54. This is 57. Josephus, the Jewish historian, talks about this Egyptian who in um, um, 54 created this riot in the temple, caused all kinds of havoc and so forth. This incident uh, brought a lot of people in there. The Romans killed all his followers and everything, but the Egyptian escaped. So there were these rumors, supposedly, that the Egyptian magically disappeared. He was going to come back one day. There was talk that he's coming back and he's going to cause him more trouble and he's going to bring more followers and so forth. So uh, apparently the, the Roman commander thinks, oh, okay, this must be this Egyptian that we've been hearing about that may come back. That might possibly explain what's going on here. And Paul answered, I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a city of no, uh, a citizen of no ordinary city. I mean, I'm from, I'm from the big, big town here. A citizen of no ordinary city. Please let me speak to the people. So Paul says, I'm from an important city, the city of Tarsus. He's, you know, very proud of the city he's from and so forth. And uh, after receiving the commander's permission, Paul stood on the steps and motioned to the crowd. When they were all silent, he said to them in Aramaic, Brothers and fathers, listen to my defense. So there's that kind of picture of the temple, another picture of the temple here in Fortress Antonio. Somewhere over here, going up to there, there's another picture of that. But probably these steps were more on the outside, we suspect, unless Paul is up here. But it seems to be somewhere on the steps here. So Paul says, uh, can I speak to them? Can I, can I talk to these people? So he speaks to them in Aramaic. Now the NIV has a footnote here, as most translations do, or possibly Hebrew. The Greek word is Hebrais, which would traditionally, which has traditionally been understood, I say traditionally by many commentators, to mean Aramaic. Uh, remember the Jews, the Hebrew, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, Hebrew Old Testament. When the Jews were taken into captivity into Babylon, the language spoken in Babylon was a language called Aramaic, very close to Hebrew, a Semitic language very similar to Hebrew. When I was in seminary, I took Hebrew, and once we studied Hebrew, we studied Aramaic because it's very close. It's very similar to Hebrew. Once you know Hebrew, you can kind of 
to learn, you can learn that. I don't know if it's like Dutch, German, you know, sort of close to maybe something like that. But they're very similar. And so when the Jews come back from captivity, we know that they're speaking a lot of Aramaic. Uh, Daniel, for instance, parts of Daniel may are, are written in Aramaic. Daniel was in captivity, remember. And we know they're speaking Aramaic. There's always been a question about, okay, in the first century, what language did Jesus speak? And if you hear most people, they'll say he spoke Aramaic, and that may be true. But in Jerusalem, we know they spoke a lot of Hebrew. A lot of archaeological evidence suggests that the Jews spoke Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic. There's all kinds of evidence. If you look at, if you look at evidence from Masada, you remember that the Jews revolted in 66. You know, they revolted. One of their last outposts was on Masada, that, where they held out for all those years there for a few years. And messages that went in and out of Masada were written in Aramaic, Hebrew, and Greek. The same thing happened in the second Jewish revolt, Bar Kokhba revolt. So there's a lot of archaeological evidence that Jews spoke all these languages. So we think Jesus spoke, you know, Hebrew, Aramaic, and probably also Greek too. It's hard to know, you know, mainly probably Aramaic. So when we get here, this is why they had that footnote there. Was Paul speaking Hebrew in Jerusalem? I think more likely Hebrew. But it might have been Aramaic. We don't know. Sure. But the trouble is the commander doesn't know what he... He doesn't... He doesn't the commander, the poor commander, he doesn't know what Paul is saying here, as we'll see in a moment. He's, he, does, he speaks Greek, and Paul is not speaking Greek here. Um, so Paul says, uh, listen to my defense. And as I say here, Paul is trying to defend himself from the fact that he's an apostate, that he is turning his back on Judaism completely. Paul sees himself as a completed Jew. Here's where Judaism should take you, to the Messiah, and so forth. Not a rejection of Judaism in that sense. He will, he will do this by setting all that's happened to him in his Christian life in a Jewish context. He will say, yes, I'm a Christian, but this all happened to me as an obedient Jew. God directed my path, and I ended up here. I'm not an apostate. Everything that came to me happened by revelation from God. God directed me along this path that I have taken. Well, when, he, when they heard him speak in Aramaic, they became silent. Then Paul said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia. Um... But brought up in this city, I studied under Gamaliel and was thoroughly trained in the law of our ancestors. I was just as zealous for God as any of you are. Today, I persecuted the followers of the way and so forth. So, I mean, I say here, Paul is arguing his Jewishness cannot be disputed. He was zealous for Judaism. I persecuted the followers of the way to their death, arresting both men and women, throwing them into prison. As the high priest and all the council can themselves testify, I even obtained letters from them to their associates in Damascus and went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. So as evidence of his zeal for Judaism, Paul cites, you know, I was as zealous as anybody. I was the leading persecutor of Christians. About noon, I came near Damascus. 
So here's Paul's second recounting of his Damascus Road experience. Remember we saw in Acts chapter 9. I fell to the ground. I heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? I asked. Well, I'm Jesus of Nazareth. Whom you are persecuting, he replied. My companions saw the light, but they didn't not understand the voice of him who was speaking to me. So Paul says this encounter was with the ascended, risen Lord, the Jesus of Nazareth, who gave him this new outlook and so forth. What shall I do, Lord? Get up, he said, and go to Damascus, verse 10. You'll be told what to do. So my companions led me into Damascus. A man named Ananias, verse 12. So Paul's description of Ananias, I say, is described to help his case. A man named Ananias came to me. He was a devout observer of the law and highly respected by all the Jews. I'm not consorting with a bunch of apostates here, friends. I'm consorting with Ananias, man. He was a, a devout Jew and highly respected. He stood beside me and said, Brother Saul, receive your sight at this moment I was able to see. And he said, God... The God of our fathers has chosen you to know this, his will and see the righteous one. And to hear the words from his mouth, you will be his witness to all people. This is Paul's you know, commission, to witness to all the people of what you have seen and heard. And now what you're waiting for, get up, be baptized, wash your sins away and call on his name. When I returned to Jerusalem, I was praying in the temple. I fell into a trance and saw the Lord speaking to me and said, Quick, leave Jerusalem, because the people here will not accept your testimony about me. I remember this was his first trip to Jerusalem three years after his conversion we talked about there in Galatians chapter 1. And that's when he goes off back to Tarsus. Lord, I replied, these people know that I went from one synagogue to another to imprison and beat those who believe in you. And the, when the blood of the martyr, your martyr Stephen was shed, I stood there giving my approval, guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. And then, he, then the Lord said to me, go. And here's where Paul gets in real trouble. Go. He's telling these Jews in Aramaic, in Jerusalem, Go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Well, that was it. And like that, did they? They were willing to believe that Paul had had a vision. Jews believed that Jews could have visions and revelations. And they were listening to this revelation and this vision that Paul had. Okay, we buy all that. But we do know one thing. God ain't sending you to no Gentiles. <laughs> that ain't happening. No, that is not happening. So they had respect for him up to that time, but this is the last straw. In a sense, Paul is saying Gentiles can be approached directly with God's message. I'm sending you to the Gentiles. No, the Gentiles have got to come to us. There's the Jewish truth. The Gentiles have got to come to us, to Jerusalem. They can't go anywhere else. The Old Testament says Gentiles have to come to Jerusalem. That's the only way, that, that's the only salvation there is in the Old Testament. Gentiles have got to come to Jerusalem to find God. You don't you can't find him out here in Ephesus anywhere. But Paul says no. God says no, I'm going to send you away to the Gentiles with this message. Which suggested, you know, again, what Paul had done. He was approaching Gentiles apart from 
the message of Judaism. This was tantamount to placing Jews and Gentiles on an equal footing, which is, of course, what they would not accept. This was the height of apostasy. Paul really was an apostate in their eyes. Well, the crowd listened to Paul until he said this, and then they raised their voices and shouted, Rid the earth of him. He's not fit to live. So Paul is in trouble. And the only way he can get out of this, seemingly, is to claim his Roman citizenship in verses 23 through 29. See, the commander doesn't know this guy's Roman. He's not dressing like a Roman. He doesn't look like a Roman. He looks like a Jew. doesn't suspect he's a Roman at all. As they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and fleeing dust in the air, <laughs> the commander ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. He directed that he be flogged and interrogated in order to find out why the people were shouting at him like this. As I say, the commander didn't speak Hebrew, Aramaic. So he couldn't figure out, you know, can you imagine you're sitting there and everybody's listening and all of a sudden they just go into an absolute riot and they're trying to kill this guy again. What would the commander think? What in the world is going on with this guy? What did he say? Yeah, what did he say that got these people so stirred up? So he decides the only way to find out is to examine this guy under torture. We're going to flog this guy, interrogate him, and get him to tell what is going on because we can't get the truth from this crowd. As I say, the instrument they used here was the mastics or the flagellum. This consisted of leather thongs, you know, on some sort of handle, metal or wooden handle, studded with pieces of metal or bone fastened to a wooden handle. It's often crippled someone, sometimes killed people under this kind of punishment. So this is, this is a much worse kind of punishment than Paul normally endured. Remember Paul said that five times he received the 39 lashes, 39, the 40 lashes minus one, the 39 lashes. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 24 and 25, he recounts, he says, five times I got the lashes, three times I was beaten with rods. That's bad enough, but this is really bad here. This you can quickly die under this kind of torture. So, uh, as they stretched him out to flog him, Paul said to the centurion standing there, is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't even been found guilty? As I say here, Roman citizens were exempt from examination under torture. Cicero, the famous Roman philosopher, senator said, it is a crime to put a Roman citizen in chains. That's already been done. So something illegal has already been done. Paul's been put into chains without a trial or anything. It's an enormity to flog one, sheer murder to slay one. What shall I say of crucifixion? It's impossible to find the word for such abomination. I say at this time, Roman citizenship was a highly prized right conferred only on those of high social or governmental standing, those who had done some exceptional service for Rome. Are those able to bribe some imperial or provincial administrator to have their names included on a list of candidates who were to be admitted as citizens? In the 2nd and 3rd centuries A.D., the use of bribery became increasingly common, but earlier it accounted for only a small minority of citizens. New citizens received a certificate, and their names were recorded on one of the 35 tribal lists at Rome and also on their local municipal register. 
succeeding generations of a citizen's family possessed a registration of birth, a professio, recording their Roman status and were registered as citizens on the taxation tables of their respective cities. It's interesting, the University of Michigan has a bunch of these professios. You can actually go online and look at them. They have they have a lot of their papyri online, but I've seen looked a lot of them, and a lot of these professios are there. No article of apparel distinguished a Roman citizen from the rest of the people, except the toga, which only Roman citizens could wear. But even a Roman, the toga was unpopular because of its cumbersomeness and was worn only on state occasions. Certainly, Paul did not wear one. Papers validating citizenship were kept in family archives and not usually carried on one's person. The verbal claim to Roman citizenship was accepted at face value. Penalties for falsifying documents and making false claims of citizenship were exceedingly stiff, usually death. Cicero said, I am a Roman citizen. That appeal has often helped and even saved many a man among the barbarians in the remotest lands. Of course, we don't know how Paul's family acquired Roman citizenship. People speculate that maybe it's likely that one of his ancestors required, got Roman citizenship. Paul says, I was born a Roman. So one of his ancestors may have done something for a Roman governor, a Roman general, a Roman official, and been included on the official roles, some meritorious service, somehow Paul's family. So this is the last thing this, the commander expects, is that this guy, this rabble-rouser, is a Roman citizen. That is the worst thing. And it's not not too good for him either. When the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and reported, what are you going to do? He asked, this man is a Roman citizen. They accept his claim at face value. The commander went to Paul and said, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? Here, they're going to accept it. Yes, I am, he answered. <laughs> the commander said, I had to pay a lot of money for my citizenship. Now, this was a bribe he's talking about. Remember, we talked about these bribes. So, what we have here in these Roman soldiers, these are not Roman soldiers in the sense of regular Roman army legionaries. The Roman army consisted of three groups. The elite guards of the emperor were called the Praetorian Guard. Remember Gladiator? The Praetorian Guard goes out and guards the emperor and so on. Then there were the legionaries, the regular Roman army. You had to be a Roman citizen to be in the Roman army. Then they had what they had, they had auxiliary forces, and they were made up of Gentiles who were not Roman citizens who were recruited from the provinces, like around Galilee, uh, the, around Damascus, the Decapolis cities around there. And these people would serve, and then after 20, 20 25 years, I've read different things, they would get Roman citizenship when they got out of the service. It was one of the benefits of this. But here is a guy who is obviously not a member of the regular Roman army. There were no regular legions in Rome, in, in Jerusalem at all, from the time of Herod until uh, until Vespasian and Titus come back and conquer, uh, you know, the Roman revolt, the Jewish revolt, sixty six. These are just auxiliary forces. So here is a guy who is a Gentile from some area, and he has bribed his way into citizenship. He said, "I had to pay a lot of money uh, for my citizenship." But Paul says, "I was born a citizen." 
Those who were about to interrogate him withdrew immediately. The commander himself was alarmed when he realized that he had put Paul, a Roman citizen, in chains. Well, we see uh, Paul's defense before the Sanhedrin. When the commander wanted to find out exactly why Paul was being accused, the commander wanted to find exactly why Paul was being accused by the Jews. I say, I feel a little sorry for this guy because he he wants to find out what's happening. He thought he could just torture Paul. Can't do that. So what's he going to do? So the next day he released him and ordered the chief priest and all the members of the Sanhedrin to assemble. Then he brought Paul and had him stand before them. So as I say here, still unsuccessful in ascertaining why the people were angry at Paul, the commander ordered the Sanhedrin to come together to interrogate his captive. As a Roman citizen, Paul had a right to know the nature of the charges against him and the penalties involved before formal accusations were laid. The commander also needed to know these things in order to decide what else should be done. Um... Perhaps he had talked with Paul after releasing from his chain, since this was a religious matter. I mean, Paul Paul probably tells him something. Paul probably says, this is a religious debate. We're debating about Judaism. And so it could be the commander decides, okay, if this is some debate about Judaism, let, let's go to the Sanhedrin here. Since it's a religious matter, let them clarify, because the Sanhedrin is the highest judicial body. Uh, as a Roman military commander, he could not participate in the Sanhedrin's decisions, but he could call the Sanhedrin together. He could, he could, uh, he could call them and say, "You've got to examine this guy." He could call the Sanhedrin together to determine what was the cause of this riot, what was going on here. And so, this is probably again on the Temple Mount here, on the uh, southern. Uh, side of the temple, the south side, the main entrance of the temple. This is that royal stoa, they call it. It's probably in there where uh, the Sanhedrin was meeting. And so Paul is brought there. Chapter 23, we see his defense before the Sanhedrin. Paul stood straight, looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, my brother's I fulfill my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. It's quite a testimony, isn't it? <laughs> I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. Wish that I could say that, you know. Wish that we could say that. Well, I see our time is up here, eight fifteen. So let's stop here for today, and we will, Lord willing. Pick this up next time, all right?